scripture reading is Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 25. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 23. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, as you are about to hear God's word read, that it is the word of God. It is the Lord speaking to you. So please give your full attention to God's word. Acts 13, 16 to 25. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uh, uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought a savior is brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were Uh, with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following, followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. 
For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, there is so much in your word. There is great riches to understand. There is depth beyond which we are able to go. Lord, we pray that you would guide us today by your spirit, that he would help us to gain insight and understanding. We pray Oh, Lord, that accompanying the understanding that your spirit gives to us, that he would use it to transform our minds. Not merely to increase knowledge, O Lord, but to cause us to love you more and more as we know more about you, as we know more about your perfect plan of salvation for your people. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified, that we would worship you now as your word is proclaimed. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now you have probably seen this, you've witnessed this as you have read through the books of the Bible, especially the historical books of the Old Testament, especially the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, the books of the Chronicles that take place. You've noticed that... Beginning with Saul's son's son Ishbosheth, and continuing on with David and all of the other kings, except for Solomon and Jeroboam, that there is a formulaic, uh, a formula given for the age of the king and the years that he reigned. Sometimes it's at the beginning of the reign. Sometimes it's at the end of the king's reigns. And so it was with Ishbosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, where we read Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. So this was that very brief period right at the beginning of, uh, of the history of, God, uh, of the kingdom, uh, the kingship in, uh, among God's people, where there was a, a divide in the kingdoms of Judah to the south and Israel to the north. 
And when Israel and Judah reunited under David, and his reign began in 2 Samuel chapter 5. We read there in verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. As I said, this is the formula that is followed with all of the kings of Israel and Judah except Solomon and Jeroboam, for whom there is no formula at all. But not so with Saul. The formula is there. But the number of years are uncertain. Now, uh, the, the, the edition of the English Standard Version that I read from this morning, it's a little newer edition than uh, my normal pulpit Bible, and in it, it fills in some numbers. That's the typical case for most English editions uh, or English translations of uh, the Old Testament, of this passage. They, they fill it in. There are other versions uh, out there uh, not the Masoretic text, but the Septuagint, other versions where there are numbers that are put in, other, uh, other uh, uh, manuscripts where there are numbers put in. But the, the most reliable of the manuscripts, the, the Masoretic text, doesn't have the number of years there. And so uh, those numbers are elided in earlier editions of the English Standard Version and perhaps other uh, English editions as well. The word one isn't actually present in the Hebrew text, and the two years is questionable whether it should be there in the Hebrew text. And so, as I've said, various other manuscripts, they try to supply the number of years because of the absence of the number. It's so unusual for that to happen. But textual scholars have reached no consensus about what it ought to be. And if you think about the way that the more recent version of the English Standard Version has it, how are we to understand this? Saul lived for one year, and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men. Does that mean that Saul was one year old? It can't possibly mean that. How long had Saul reigned at this point? Had it only been for two years? And then as, uh, as Acts chapter 13 says, he goes on to rule for 38 more years after the incident here described in, Saul, uh, in 1 Samuel 13, where God uh, removes his blessing and his hand from Saul. And so it's very difficult to understand how exactly this all works out. But we have to just relegate this, that this is not necessarily important. And it may well be that the lack of the number of years is the original way that it was intended to be by the author of 1 Samuel. Now, this is, I have to admit, speculation on my part. I think it is hopefully harmless speculation, but bear with me just a moment. It may be, possibly be the case that the author of 1 Samuel left this information out because he had a belief that Saul did not deserve to have the number of years that he reigned as king preserved for history. That he was unworthy of, of such a, a formula being put into his account. Now, if the two years is original there, it most likely refers to the number of years that he had been king when the events of chapter 13 took place, although that's still in question. And we'll get to the question there a little bit later. What we must acknowledge is that Saul ruled for many more years after the events that take place in our passage. But in effect, his kingship, and this is the point of the passage, his kingship is in effect over because God rejects him because of what he has done in this passage. Samuel tells Saul in our passage that, that because of what he has done, because of his disobedience, God has sought out a man after his own heart, an, another man, to be the ruler of his people. And this gets us to 
uh, what I would ask for you to consider, to contemplate, to keep at the front of your minds as we work our way through the sermon today, that the only true man after God's own heart is Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to search for those who are lost. I'll say it one more time. The only true man after God's own heart is Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to search for those who are lost. Well, the sermon consists of three points. For, for the sake of symmetry, it might be a little bit forced in some cases, for the sake of symmetry, each of these three points begins with the same word. The first point, stolen valor. The second point, stolen authority. And the third point, stolen time. So again, stolen valor, uh, that's the first section of the sermon today. The second, uh, stolen authority. And the third, stolen time. So hopefully we can make this all work in a way that you feel comfortable with those, uh, those uh, uh, section heads. Uh, but if not, you can come up with something different. That's fine. I won't be offended. Now, we've only, uh, already touched on verse 1 just a little bit. So I'll only add that verse 1 indicates that a somewhat lengthy period of time has elapsed since the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. But again, that's somewhat contested. It's difficult to know. And we'll get to this uh, in the second section. But it's possible, and some, uh, many commentators and scholars believe this, that these events follow closely on the heels of what took place in chapter 10, where Samuel told Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait for him there seven days. Now, as you read through the intervening events, it's, it's hard for us to imagine, I must admit, it's hard to imagine that all of the things that took place happened, and then Saul went and waited seven days. For Samuel to come. But, but it's not beyond uh, belief. It's not beyond the understanding. Verse 2 says that Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash uh, in the, and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, verse 2 is very brief. Uh, it very briefly describes Saul's raising up of a standing army for Israel, rather than the irregulars, uh, basically a cobbling together of 330,000 men with whom Saul fought in chapter 11. Right now, he's, he's going to have a standing army. He wants these, uh, these men, these soldiers, to be in garrison. They're always ready to go. Their job is not to farm, uh, is not to herd. Their job is to fight. Uh, 2,000 were stationed with Saul and Michmash, and the other, were, the other 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah. Now, these two towns aren't that very far apart, only about six miles. And Geba is in between these two towns. Jonathan went out against the, the garrison, garrison of the Philistine soldiers at Geba, and he defeated them. And the Philistines heard about this, which certainly didn't make them very happy. You'll uh, read their reaction a little bit later on. And then verse 3 goes on to say that Saul blew the trumpet throughout all of the land and that Saul called on the Hebrews to hear about the victory over the Philistines at Geba. But interestingly, verse 4 says, And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. We could take this a couple of different ways. You could read this as a fairly benign announcement that Saul, because he is king, gets the credit for the defeat of the Philistine garrison at Geba, even though he had nothing to do with it, even though it was his son Jonathan who did it. You could read it that way, fairly benign. 
You could also read it, and, and this is obviously by the title of the section here, you could read it the way that I have chosen to, to read it, that, that, that Saul is taking something that doesn't rightly belong to him. And this becomes a pattern for him. That he, that he takes away from his, his son the victory over the garrison at Geba. Saul gave the instructions that news of the victory over the Philistine uh, garrison there be spread about all the land. But what was told was that Saul had defeated the garrison, not Jonathan. There's no mention of his son's name in the victory. And it's also interesting to note that nothing at this point has been mentioned about the fact that Jonathan is Saul's son, which gives the impression of distance between these two men. And this distance is exemplified, I believe, in Saul taking credit for Jonathan's victory, for stealing the valor that, that Jonathan ought to have. And it will only grow over the years as Jonathan's and David's friendship grows. And so you begin to understand a little better in a little different light why it is that, that Jonathan, he, he has less loyalty to his father than he does to David, who becomes his very best friend. The exuberance that was felt after the victory was very short-lived. Jonathan's defeat of the garrison served to kick the hornet's nest. The Philistines mustered their troops to fight against Israel. They were ready to go. This had angered them very much. They brought 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. No exact count of the number of inf infantrymen is given, but all the troops together are described as being like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And so you can imagine that, that if there's a, if there's a, 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 a number of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 uh, mounted troops on horses, that the number of foot soldiers has to be uh, innumerable. And the Philistine army encamped in uh, McMash which lay to the east of beth Aven, which is most likely another name for Bethel. Saul and his army have gathered at Gilgal now. And they are awaiting Samuel's arrival. They are supposed to wait for him there seven days, according to verse 8. And in the meantime, the people of Israel and the soldiers became increasingly anxious. This Philistine army to Israel seems invincible. And we're going to, as we get to the last section of the passage, we're going to understand a little better why. But they seem invincible to Israel. Israel is now described as having become a stench to the Philistines. They were preparing to wipe Israel out off the map. And so soldiers and, and people of Israel began to hide themselves in caves and tombs. Some of them, the soldiers deserted. They left the army. They crossed over the Jordan River. They headed east. They were getting away from the conflict. And verse 7 says that all the people who were still following Saul were trembling. The might of the Philistine army had instilled great fear in the people of Israel. And it probably did not help that some Israelites undoubtedly knew that Saul had taken credit for his son's victory. He was now in the eyes of at least some, if not many, in the eyes of at least a number of his soldiers, which probably led to some of them deserting, going AWOL. He was in their eyes a commander who was taking credit for the efforts of his troops. We come now to the second point of the sermon, stolen authority. Verse 8 says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from, from him. Now at this point, if you are like me, you, you might have become a little bit confused. 
There's nothing in our passage to indicate that Saul had been commanded by Samuel to go to Gilgal. If we're thinking this is taking place a couple of years into Saul's reign now. If that's the line of interpretation that you've chosen to take, there's nothing in the passage, we don't get anything from Samuel where he's telling Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait for him there seven days and that Samuel will come to him. We do have that, however, back in chapter 10, verse 8. Your Bibles may have cross-references to chapter 10, verse 8. Samuel says there, in that verse, Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and and, uh, sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, it may well be that what takes place in uh, chapter 13, verse 4 and following with Saul and the people going to Gilgal are in response to what Samuel told Saul back in chapter 10, verse 8. As I said, many scholars, many commentators, that's the view that they hold. But if so, it's not, there, are, there are some issues with that line of interpretation. There, there are issues with the other way of viewing it too. If so, it's challenging to see how the intervening events in chapters 11 and 12 could have taken place in this allotted time. Especially if Saul was supposed to wait at Gilgal for seven days. And so, uh, in contrast to this position, one commentator puts it this way. The reference can hardly be to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, but presupposes a similar instruction given for this occasion also. Maybe Samuel undertook always to come within seven days in any time of crisis. This could have been a standing order. It could have been. Again, there's speculation either way. It could have been a standing order that Samuel had given to Saul. Anytime there's a national ur- ur- emergency, go to Gilgal, wait there for me for seven days. I will appear, we will offer, I will offer on behalf of Israel an offering, a sacrifice. Whichever way you take it, it's not the most important thing how you understand it, but whichever way you take it, Saul was commanded. There was a command given to Saul to wait seven days at Gilgal. At which point Samuel was to come and to offer burnt offerings and to offer peace offerings. And so imagine this. This massive Philistine army has, has, has come together. They're, they're within the, the bounds of the promised land. They're at Michmash. They're very close. They're not too far off from, from, uh, from Gibeah of Benjamin. They're not too far off from where uh, uh, Saul has been hoping to, to garrison his troops. They're really not that far from Gilgal, which is about 15 or so miles to the east of of Michmash. And they are threatening. They are imposing. They look invincible. And so there's a massive amount of pressure on Saul. His troops were starting to go AWOL. And Saul did as he was instructed, mostly. He waited the seven days, or at least he got to the seventh day. And he gets there, and Samuel is a no-show. He gets to that point. He waits at Gilgal under all of this pressure. A week. Can you imagine? He's there, and Samuel doesn't show up. Now, perhaps there was a similar unwritten rule then as the one in our day about a professor showing up a certain number of minutes late for class. And we all know that that's true, right? Except you've never heard it stated clearly in the manuals, in the, in the student handbook. There's nothing that says if a professor is 15 minutes late, then you get to go home. But every student knows that that's true. 
It could be that this is the assumption that Saul was making. Well, Samuel's not here. We've got to get going. The troops of the Philistines are right there. They're amassed. They're ready to attack. We've got to go. We can't wait any longer. And so Saul seemed to think that since Samuel was late, he could proceed with the sacrifices without Samuel. And so verse 9 says that he went ahead with the offerings. And wouldn't you know it? As soon as Saul had finished with the offerings, verse 10 says, Behold, Samuel came. And, and the language here, the, the, the wording here in the original, it's very clear that Samuel just shows up. Saul thinks he's in the clear. Samuel shows up. The phrasing of these verses makes it very clear that Saul was under a test. Samuel perhaps was just waiting on the other side of a, of a hill where Saul didn't know. Would, would Saul be obedient to the commandments of the prophet of the Lord? Would he wait? And the answer was, no, he would not. And what's worse, he offered the sacrifices himself, even though as a king he had no right to do so. Saul is showing himself to be disobedient and dishonorable. He is honorable. He is stealing the authority that only the prophet of the Lord has. Samuel confronts him about it in verse 11. He asks there, what have you done? And Saul answered, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the, the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. If only Saul had waited a few more hours. But this, unfortunately, was not who Saul was. He acted out of impatience. His kingship had already gone to his head. He had inverted the order of things and placed himself above the position of the prophet of the Lord in this hierarchy that we talked about a few weeks ago. Yahweh, and then the prophet of the Lord who gives the word of the Lord to the king of the Lord. Samuel had usurped that authority. He had taken a spot directly under Yahweh. And so, in a sense, he was seeking to take the spot above Yahweh. Saul had not heeded the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Samuel, and that was his undoing. Samuel responds to Saul initially with one word. In verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. The four words in English are actually one word in Hebrew. It's almost as if Samuel had said, this is not almost as if he had said, you fool. What have you done? And as one commentator puts it, by this one word, Samuel sweeps Saul's behavior and explanation aside. All of the words that Saul used to, to, to defend himself from what he knew was coming, Samuel just brushes them aside. You have done foolishly. A foolish person is universally denounced in the Bible. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary writes, In Scripture, the fool is morally and spiritually blameworthy, not merely lacking in intellect. A foolish person is one who is morally depraved. There's something wrong with that person that simply doesn't mean that they're crazy in the head, but that they're perverted. Samuel continues in verses 13 and 14, never once addressing Saul's explanation of why he had disobeyed. 
Saul is giving excuses about why he disobeyed. Samuel goes into a, a speech and never once addresses the reasons that Saul had disobeyed. He tells Saul, you have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Now up to this point, there had never been any mention of a Sauline dynasty being set up in Israel. But that didn't mean that Saul hadn't dreamed of the kingship extending from him to Jonathan and on down his line. It was likely the case for the neighboring nations who had kings that, that it was a, a, a family a, a lineage that, that brought uh, the kingship from one, uh, the father to the son and so on and so forth. Now it may seem to, to us in, in our day and age that it was a, such a minor thing for Saul to have what he has done that resulted in such an extreme outcome. One small infraction and Saul's descendants won't be able to sit on the throne. Give me a break. He just, he just grew impatient. He's the king. He, he had been anointed to be the king so he could lead his people in battle against the Philistines, against his, his people's enemies. That's exactly what he's trying to do. But the truth is, that Saul's disobedience wasn't small or insignificant. But even if it had been a minor thing, we need to remind ourselves that there is no such thing as a small or in insignificant sin in the sight of God. The seemingly smallest of sins is enough to condemn the person who commits it to eternal punishment in hell. Because God is infinitely holy. And so even the so-called smallest of sins has no place in God's presence. So the king of God's people committing such a grave sin, robbing authority from the prophet of the Lord by disobeying his command, resulted in grave consequences. Saul had been put under a test, a probation as it were, and Saul had failed. The people had gotten a man after their own heart as their king. They got who they wanted and who they demanded, but now God had sought out a man after his own heart. And the man after his own heart, after God's own heart, at this point hasn't been revealed. And yet we know Samuel is speaking here of David. Paul makes that very clear in Acts chapter 13, verse 22 from our scripture reading. Paul said there, and when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And yet... Later on in that same speech, Paul makes it very clear that David isn't the ultimate fulfillment of the word that Samuel spoke to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verses 36 and 37, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. David is described as doing God's will. That's what it means. He's a man after my He did God's will. But we cannot forget that David sinned as well, and he sinned grievously. He stole another man's wife. He forced himself on her. He had her husband killed in an attempt to hide his sin. 
But God had made an implicit promise to Saul through Samuel that the king raised up after Saul would have his kingdom established forever. And God made that explicit promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, 13 about his offspring. Now the fact that a person who is capable of committing Grave sins can be described as a man after God's own heart should give hope to us, to those of us who sin today. And if you weren't aware of it, that's all of us. If David can be described as a man after God's own heart, then that means that we too can be described in such a way. But the fact that David committed such sins and more also shows that he was not the man after God's own heart in an ultimate sense. Which is Paul's point in Acts chapter 13. Paul points to David. He points to this lesser king to show him in contrast to the greater king. Now, After Samuel said these things to Saul, he departed from Gilgal and now Saul was alone. Samuel had departed Saul, and this would remain the case for the rest of Saul's time as king. That takes us to our third and final point this morning, this morning stolen time. A person who reads 1 Samuel for the first time would understandably expect that after Samuel's words to Saul in this, in this passage, our passage this morning, that Saul's reign as king would be over right then. That this would mark an immediate end to Saul's reign. That the, the man who had been sought out and found, that he would take over. But it's the case that the man who had been sought out and found was in fact a boy. And he'll show up in a few chapters. And so it's not the case. Saul would continue on as king even after his successor. David was anointed as king by Samuel. And as we read in Acts chapter 13, Saul was king. He reigned as king for 40 years. Now you might say that Saul was reigning on borrowed or perhaps stolen time. Now this is where I've sort of forced the, the word there for some symmetry, for those of you who uh, love symmetry. He's, he's reigning on stolen time. At this point in 1 Samuel, no successor to Saul has been named, much less anointed or coronated as king. Saul has to face the Philistines who are growing restless. And after the attrition that had taken place over the seven days that Saul was waiting for Samuel at Gilgal, his standing army had dwindled down to 600 men. And verses 17 and 18 say that raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three separate companies. One company turned to Orphrah, the land of Shual. Another company turned to Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. This is not good for Saul and his remaining forces. And to compound matters, the Philistines were more technologically advanced than Israel. We read in these verses that they, we've already read rather, that they have 30,000 chariots. They have a, a mounted cavalry. But the Philistines also had moved into the Iron Age while, the Isra while Israel was still in the bronze. And the Philistines were keeping their technology proprietary. Wouldn't it be great if our own military, our own government could do the same in protecting our proprietary technology from those who are our enemies? Verse 19 says that there were no blacksmiths at this time in the land of Israel. The Philistines had withheld the knowledge that they possessed specifically for the purpose of keeping Israel from matching them in battle. They wanted the technological advantage. 
And so in order to have weapons to fight, the Israelites took farming equipment. They had plowshares, mattocks, axes, sickles, and they didn't have the, the means to sharpen these implements. They had to go to the Philistines themselves, which enabled the Philistines to increase their war chest by charging the Israelites exorbitant prices to have them sharpened. The only people in Israel's army who had either sword or spear were Saul and his son Jonathan. Everyone else had tools, implements, farm, uh, farm tools to use, repurposed for fighting. And chapter 13 ends with verse 23. And the garrison of the Philistines went out on the pass of Michmash. Now the stage is set for the battle. But the battle is not going to be described until chapter 14, where, as we will see, things end up going actually pretty well for Israel. What we'll see is that chapters 13 and 14, they they complement one another. 13 bleeds right into chapter 14. But the author of chapter uh, 13, the author of 1 Samuel, rather, won't let chapter 13 end on a positive note. He's keeping things in a minor key because uh, because of what Saul did. Because of the fact that Samuel, and hence the word of the Lord, had departed from Saul, he lets this chapter end. On a minor note. And he will not let it resolve until a new chapter begins. Saul's disobedience, his sin, overshadows the entire chapter. And so to provide the details of Jonathan's successful battle against the Philistines in chapter 13 would be to brighten things up more than they should be. And the author does not allow it to happen. And so when chapter 14 begins, and of course there were no chapter divisions when 1 Samuel was written, when we we get to chapter 14 you can see, even in the English, that the author uh, makes it very clear that a new section has started. But in chapter 13 the situation remains very grim. And yet, as grim as it is here at the end of chapter 13, we are not left without hope. A hopeless situation can lead you into a deep depression. But, and this is the case for many of you, a hopeless situation can also drive you to seek out a reason to have hope. And God has given just such a reason for hope in this chapter. Though Saul is essentially now a lame lame duck king, the promise of a better king, the promise of a forever king looms large on the horizon. A king after God's own heart is coming. One who, unlike Saul or even David, is authorized to make atonement for the sins of his people. And though everyone is rendered helpless and hopeless because of our sin, we have a positive duty to seek out this man after God's own heart. Everyone on the face of the earth is obligated to bend his knee or her knee to King Jesus. Now, of course, we can't do it. We're incapable of seeking King Jesus out on our own. And so God has done it for us. Though we are obliged to seek out this forever king, God has sought us out. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, 23, that his father is seeking people to worship him. You didn't seek the father. He sought you. 
You didn't go after Him. He sent His only begotten Son to come after you. Jesus, in in going to that woman at the well in Samaria, He could have taken a much shorter route up to Galilee. A straight shot right up by the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee. But what did He do? He went on a detour because He knew that the woman at the well would be at the well. And He sought her out. And that is exactly what the Lord has done for you if you trust in Jesus Christ. Because of your sin, you cannot search for the man after God's own heart. But the good news is that He, Jesus, came to search for you. And though He is at His Father's right hand in heaven, He and the Father have sent the Spirit to do that work of searching out for God's people. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you can trust with a certainty that it is because the Spirit has sought you out. That the Son has rescued you. If you believe in Jesus Christ because of your, uh, despite your sin, you can rest assured that you will live forever with Him. Because He is your forever King And he has won the battle that has secured the victory that has resulted in the salvation of your and my and all his people's souls. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, O Lord, that you are good and that your mercies ever endure. We thank you that you have bestowed grace upon us. And it is truly grace because we have done nothing to deserve it. You have given to us the gift of salvation and we are grateful. We pray that you would help us to trust in Christ our King as our commander, as our leader. We pray that you'd help us to trust in the fact that he has made full atonement for our sins and that there is nothing that we can undo that we can do to undo it. So please, O oh Lord, give us joy in our hearts, we pray. And help us to live lives. Lives that worship you. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.